helpful and useful in a lot of situations in life. And what we'll see in this story is a glimpse of God's Father's heart. Now, that could mean a totally different thing to you depending on your disposition, depending on what the word Father means to you. What kind of emotions come up when you hear that? Uh, it could mean something totally different to you depending on where, where you're at. But this story is what we refer, one we refer to as the woman at the well. Pretty well-known story. Uh, and it's like a well in the sense that it's really not complicated. But it is very, very deep. Uh, there are many implications uh, for all of us, whether you've been following Christ for your entire life or you haven't been at all. Uh, we're going to learn a lot about Jesus personally and about God's personal heart from this story. And I think at a high level, something that we just need to grab onto, and, and you, might just, you might just write this down, uh, is the idea that God cares intimately about people. God is personal. Jesus is personal. Uh, when you're laying in your bed at night and you know, you're, you're thinking about this thing and you're trying to give it to God and you're, you're praying to him, uh, that prayer's not just like nebulously going up there arbitrarily into space and hopefully landing on some disengaged ears. God is personal, and we see that in this story. Uh, so I want to try something that we haven't done before, but I think it'll be a good exercise for us, get us out of our comfort zone. I want to pray a prayer together. Uh, it's very short. It's only two sentences. So this is what I would like to do. I want to pray, and then I'm going to ask you to repeat after me, Okay. Um, we got, now, we got a few teenagers here. I'm counting on you guys, okay? Because we are, we are a church of grown introverts, but I'm counting on you guys uh, to, to pull us out of our shell, okay? So, uh, so let's try this. Lord, help me know you, Lord, me know you. Through, your word, through your word so I can glorify you, so I glorify you. Through, my life. through my life, okay? That was good. You guys are good. Okay, we're going to try, try it again because I didn't actually hear the teenagers that time, so... <laughs> Uh, so let's try that one more time. Lord, help me know you through your word so I can glorify you through my life. You guys did a good job. I'm proud of you guys. Okay, uh, so if you've got a Bible, it's John chapter 4, verse 1. Um, I hope you've got a John journal handy. Uh, if you don't, feel free to pop up and grab one because if God says something to you, you're going to want to make sure and write it down. You're going to want to make sure that you've, you've got that locked in. So John chapter, one, uh, John chapter 4, verse 1, here we go. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he, was go, that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist, although in fact it was not Jesus who was doing the baptizing, but it was his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had gone through, now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Okay, uh, so Jesus is in, uh, he's in Judea, which is kind of in the southern part of the region he lived and ministered in. Uh, Jerusalem, uh, the hub, the capital of their entire nation is in Judea. Uh, and so he's there, and the good people, the religious people, are sort of griping about his ministry because he's gaining a lot of attention. Uh, he's the son of God, so no surprise there. Uh, but what he does is he decides to leave. He's going to go back to Galilee, which is in the northern part. You can see on the map there. Uh, now, Jerusalem, which is the capital of their nation, 
and Nazareth, which is where Jesus grew up, the distance between those two is about 90 miles. If you were to go on a, on a direct line, it's about 90 miles. So you can get a sense of how long it would take you to walk 90 miles. Uh, sounds terrible. It would be probably several days, probably you know, three days if you were really committed to getting there, maybe longer. Uh, but it's about, 90, it's about 90 miles. It's a long walk. Now, if you were to theoretically, if you can see the, the kind of gray colored line, if you were to go around Samaria, it would probably be, I don't know if it would be twice that far, but significantly farther, uh, a lot farther than any of us would like to walk. But in their day, Jews would never have taken the direct route. Uh, Jesus obviously does, as we know from the text, but, but the Jews would always have gone the extra mile or the extra 50 miles, as it were, to go around Samaria. Why is that, you might ask? And it's because they hated each other uh, passionately. I would say if you'll walk three days out of your way to avoid seeing someone, uh, your relationship's in a bad spot. Uh, it turns out that's where they were. So I just want to give you, the context is important to the story, so I just want to give you the extremely abbreviated version of why they hated each other so passionately. So if you were to rewind the clock up about 700 years before this situation happens, uh, in the year 722 BC, basically the entire nation of Israel came under captivity to the Babylonian Empire. Uh, the Babylonians were the dominant power in the world at that time, and so they just, they just overran this entire region of the world, and including the nation of Israel. So the Jews are living under the thumb of the Babylonians, and many other nations have also been sucked in by the Babylonian Empire. And so what's happening is, you have some Jews who are very devoted to God, uh, very devoted to uh, observing God's law, even though they're under captivity. But then you have another group of Jews who have begun to intermingle with these, with all kinds of other religious groups. Some of them we would consider to be just plain buck nutty. Uh, and some of them we would consider to be just incredibly disturbing. They practice things like child sacrifice, uh, all kinds of crazy pagan religions uh, in this time. And so friction evolved between the group of Jews who were devoted to God and the group who began to sort of adopt the beliefs of the culture around them. Uh, that friction eventually evolved into you know, massive hatred between the two. And what happened was, as this particular group adopted other beliefs, uh, they eventually settled in the area of Samaria. And that is the Samaritans. This, this woman that Jesus will encounter is a Samaritan. Effectively, what happened was they took, they kept some of their Jewish beliefs, they kept some of the scripture, uh, they took other portions, the one they didn't like as much, and either got rid of them or just completely twisted them to, to fall in line with what their new belief system was. Uh, they practiced all kinds of crazy sexual idolatry and just weird uh, sexual relationships, which is pretty normal for cults. Usually somebody has a weird uh, line of thinking in that area. That's where most of them are born. You add in some bullying and some manipulation, and boom, you have a cult. And so that's, that's what's happened. And this has been going on for, for hundreds of years. They are avoiding each other altogether. Now, the Jews view the Samaritans effectively as... Um, filthy pagans who have intentionally turned their back on God. Uh, that's kind of their view, and so they don't want anything to do with them. And it sounds like, okay, well, the Jews might be a little harsh there. Maybe they should be more loving. Uh, that's probably true. But at the same time, 
the Samaritans have, in fact, founded their culture on basically just being as depraved and uh, lacking a moral compass and um, being as morally, spiritually, and relationally depraved as they possibly can be. Like that's, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they had a what happens in Samaria stays in Samaria campaign. I mean, that's not in the text, but it wouldn't surprise me if that, that happens. So, um, so they have this culture that's just built on the notion of doing whatever kind of sick, crazy thing you can imagine without regard for consequences or morality or how it affects other people. Those are the Samaritans. They, they hate each other. I think the important thing for us to recognize from this story isn't that the friction exists. The important thing really for us to recognize is that Jesus went to the undesirable place and he engaged the undesirable people. That's the important thing for us to realize. Um, Because we are, uh, if, if you're a Christian, we are in probably more danger of isolating ourselves from whoever it is that we consider to be the undesirable people than we are in danger of engaging them as if that was a danger. But, but the first significant hurdle we see Jesus jump over is this idea that redemption is actually for the good people, but it's also for the not-so-good people. We're all on a level, level playing field. God loves messed-up people, not just good people, uh, because really the people who consider themselves good are only good by their own standard. God loves messed-up people not just good people. So here might be just a, an interesting question for you to ask yourself. Might be worth writing down, although I think the answer is obvious. Uh, should I love and engage messed up people? That's sort of a, just a generic nebulous term, whatever that means to you. But, but should I? Well, if I'm concerned about emulating Jesus, being like Jesus, following Jesus, the answer is yes, because that's what he did. Romans 5, 6 is just just a really powerful, really honestly life-changing verse. It says, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now think about that statement. Who did he die for? He died for the good people. He died for the ungodly. So the question becomes, do I I want to be known as one of the good people or do I want to be one of the people that Jesus died for? The answer is, I already am ungodly, I just need to identify that. Make sense? Uh, Christ died at just the right time for ungodly people, no matter, how, no matter what your sin looks like. So that, that's the important thing for us to really understand. Not so much the, you know, the historical picture of why they hate each other, but the fact that Jesus died for all of them. He wanted to engage all of them. Chapter 4, verse 7, reading along, says... When a Samaritan woman came to draw water from this well that Jesus had rested at, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. If you think about the just modern uh, parallel to this, it's always dangerous when I just totally abandon what I have written down right there. But just think about this notion, okay? We know Samaria is like the, it's the place where people go to get crazy and have no one who knows them find out about it, right? It's, it's sort of a morally depraved culture. Um, so just picture this, right? The Jewish boy and his buddies go to Vegas for the weekend. The buddies go off to find something to eat, and the Jewish boy encounters a questionable woman at uh, the local watering hole, and then she ends up being a missionary, 
Like, the conclusion of the story is, like, totally foreign to, to how it would normally play out, right? That's not the ending that you would expect. Uh, but I think that reveals something. When I think about how this woman's story could have ended up differently, and, and if you don't know the story, that's, that's okay, we'll get to it. Uh, I think there's one person who could have made a huge difference in this woman's life, and that was her father. Her dad could have changed her story. I don't know what happened to him. Maybe he died. Maybe, I, I don't know. But if, but if her dad was engaged in her life, he could have changed the circumstances that we'll, we'll see play out. And I think what's amazing right here is that uh, this woman has been mistreated by a lot of men, as we'll find out. And what does Jesus do? He acts like a dad. He does what a dad would do. He does what's best for her long-term well-being instead of what everyone else has done in her life. It's pretty cool, pretty cool stuff that we'll see play out here. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Uh, okay, so he's obviously not talking about you know, the water in the well. They're, they're obviously speaking a different language. Uh, the Samaritans have they've made their home in this particular region, and it's the same area where, uh, where Jacob, as in Jacob and Esau, or Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob, got those in the wrong order there, uh, one of the patriarchs of the Jews once lived. It's, it's his well. Jacob comes on the scene of the biblical narrative way back in Genesis 25, really, really early on. So his well has been here for a very, very long time. So they live in the desert. Have you ever been to the desert? You've been to like uh, Palm Springs or, you know, Phoenix, something like that. Brandy and I used to live in Yakima, uh, which is, interestingly, uh, you may or may not have known this, there's a massive military complex just outside of Yakima, just hundreds of thousands of acres, it might actually be millions, uh, it just goes for miles and miles. And they do a lot of training there because it is, within the United States, it's the, uh, the region of the United States that most closely resembles the Middle East, the terrain uh, of the Middle East. And so they come from all over, all over the country, uh, the army does, to, uh, to do a lot of training there. It's high desert is what it's like. Uh, so uh, this woman is at the well at noon. They live in the desert. If you lived in Yakima and you had to walk to the well and carry the pots back to your house, most of the year you would never do it at noon unless you literally wanted to have your face melted off. Uh, no one goes at noon. They always go in the morning. Uh, in fact, in their time, this would have been a big, a really important part of kind of the domestic responsibilities uh, of what most of the women would do. Now, if you live in your parents' house, which some of you do, uh, you probably think like food just appears, it's just there, but no, there's a good chance one of your parents actually went to the store and, uh, and went and actually got that food. Um, that's domestic responsibility. They make sure you have what you need. Well, the woman would have gone, the, gone to get the water for the day. So if you have to go get your water for the day, you don't have plumbing, you're not going to go once the day's halfway over. You're going to go first thing. Everyone would go in the morning and the well would become really sort of just a cultural, uh, kind of a social hub. Uh, you know, we go to uh, maybe a coffee shop or maybe you gather up at the front door of your school or the water cooler, whatever it might be. This is their social spot. Early in the morning, the women go there. This particular woman is there in the middle of the day when no one else would be there for a reason I think that will become pretty apparent. 
She's, uh, she's in this part of the world where women don't have a lot of rights. Uh, a woman would go from her father's care to her husband's care, and not, she would be as much property as anything else, and this would be her, her responsibility to go fulfill the routine, get the water for the family. Uh, what we're going to see is this woman is actually an outcast among outcasts. Samaritan woman has been considered unclean by the people who are considered unclean. So I just say, I mentioned that so you can get a scope of all the hurdles Jesus is going over, okay? He's, um, he's having to clear the hurdle between Jews and Samaritans. He's also having to clear the hurdle between men and women. Men would not have spoken to women in public unless it was their wife. Uh, and he's also clearing this hurdle between religiously clean and unclean. So, so there's, there's just this first reality to the story that I think is really important. We see Jesus clear all these hurdles. He, go, he gets over every barrier. And the reality for us is no one gets to say, not me. He goes to the most unclean person so that no one can say, I've gone too far. I'm too much of a mess. God doesn't want me. Nobody gets to say, not me. He went to the outcast among the outcasts to take that one off the table. Nobody gets to say, God doesn't want me. Further, no religious person gets to say, not them. They're, they're too far out there. They're too much of a mess. They're too unclean. Nobody, nobody gets to say, not me, and nobody gets to say, not them. Romans 3, verse 23 and 24, probably familiar to a lot of you, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the, God, the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So does God want you? Yes. Does God want successful people and unsuccessful people? Yes. Does he want healthy people and unhealthy people? Yes. Does he want hurting people, confused people? The answer is yes. Nobody gets to say, not me. So he asks this woman uh, for a drink of water, and, uh, and she just can't believe that he's talking to her. Uh, try to crawl into her mind and get to the place where... Uh, I feel so downtrodden that I can't believe someone's talking to me. You know, if you just think about the headspace she would have to be in to be that discouraged, uh, that's, that's pretty discouraged. And she says, well, there's a problem because you don't have anything to draw with. And Samaritans and Jews, they're not going to exchange a cup. You know, they're normally not even going to exchange words. They're certainly not going to share water with each other. But Jesus, ever on mission, pivots to this living water. And that's the thing we, we really got to get our hands on. Uh, he says, if you knew who I was, and, and you'd be asking me for living water. If you, if you really understood what was happening here, you'd be asking me for living water. He's, he's not talking about actual water anymore. He's talking about this living water. It's a pretty easy connection, probably for you and you and I to make. Uh, have you ever been, try to imagine this picture, have you ever gone through like a desert area, or we have places like this in Washington, where everything is just dead and dry, but you can see like a stripe of green out there somewhere, or like a, a bundle of green out there, what, what's there? You know there's water close by, because where there's water, there's life, and that's what Jesus is trying to lead, to, lead her to. Um, there is today... I would just imagine what's happening in the world today would just blow the minds of someone in the first century like this. But today, there's a whole group of scientists who are 
really pretty dedicated to trying to find signs of water on Mars. Uh, because if there's signs of water, there's probably, there's probably life. The body is temporary, he says, but the soul is eternal. He's trying to lead her to eternal water for the soul. By telling her, and us by extension, that's probably a good thing to, to make a note of, is that your soul needs spiritual water in the same way that your body needs physical water. Without it, there will be no life. Where there's water, there's life. It's true in the natural, it's true spiritually. Now, I would add, just, uh, just as a sidebar, that our tendency as people is to, to focus on the natural, what we see. Uh, we make decisions about everything, including about God, based on, on what we see, but that's not the whole story. In fact, the Bible's pretty clear that without faith, it's impossible to get there. It's impossible to understand God and have a relationship with God. And Jesus points out the fact that it would be a really regrettable thing for any one of us to gain the whole world, but to lose our soul. For us to go through life and be successful at everything, but not have spiritual water, not have spiritual life, would be really, really unfortunate. It would be no good to us. So Jesus is looking out for her, her well-being. In verse 13, it says, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water swelling up to eternal life. Uh, try, to, try to envision the feeling of being really, really thirsty being really, really parched. Um, I went to Joshua Tree, California last summer. Has anyone been to Joshua Tree, California by any chance? Yeah, a couple, couple of you. Uh, not much to see there. Um, it sounds cool, but only because I, that was an album name of one of U2's most popular albums. Uh, other than that, there's nothing cool about Joshua Tree. But what I noticed is when you go past places where there actually is water, it's like just the deepest, most robust green that you've ever seen in your life. Uh, there'll just be these little spots where it's just death all around, and you'll see someone's yard who has a sprinkler system, and you're like, oh my gosh, I live in a part of the world where there's infinitely more rain than there is here, and your grass is so unbelievably green. That's, that's what it's like when you see water in dry places. Things grow like crazy. Well, listen to this description of the... Uh, the spiritual equivalent. This is from Psalm chapter 1, right at the beginning of the, verse, the, the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. The soul that finds itself in Christ is like a tree planted by a stream of water. Have you, have you been next to a stream where there's trees growing up around it? Uh, they're almost always robust and healthy. Uh, sometimes you, what you find is it's so thick you really can't even like, see what's past the trees on the other side. This is what the soul that finds itself in Christ is like. The work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, in your soul, in your mind, 
will be more life-giving to you than the work of water on a living organism. Think about this, this conversation. Jesus doesn't want to talk about water. I mean, water is important. We've got to have it to live. But he wants to talk about spiritual water because the work of the Holy Spirit in your soul is actually more life-giving than the work of water in your body. Spiritual water giving eternal life. Now, she doesn't get that yet. Uh, that's okay. She doesn't have the context that we have. Uh, we're going we're gonna to actually divide this story in half uh, this week and next week. But, um, but listen to, to how she responds when, when Jesus is talking about this living water springing up to eternal life. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. I think that's exactly what all of us would say if someone said, yeah, I have eternal water that never runs out. But he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So at this point, she's probably tuning into the fact that we're not talking about the water in the well anymore. She hopefully has figured that out. Uh, But Jesus starts digging into the matters of the heart, as he often does. The question might be, why? Why is he doing that? Is he trying to point out the error of her ways? Is he trying to reform her? Uh, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think that's the issue. I think he's actually trying to address the thing that's been draining the life out of her so that he can replace it with living water. Does that make sense? Um, he's calling attention to the one thing that's probably been most life-sucking for her, and that is not the specifics of the situation, but her, uh, her broken relationships. He's trying to address that and heal that so that he can replace it with this living water. Now, she wants the living water, right? She says, sir, give me this living water. But here's the reality that we can see from her life circumstance is that she's seeking life in places where it can't be found. She's looking for fulfillment in places where it can't be found. And the result is... She has an entire minivan full of X's and a lot of baggage, and what she's doing right now is that she's trying to fill that void with more of what didn't work in the past. Have you ever done that? Ever tried to, to fill the emptiness with more of what didn't work, right? You, you got a promotion, and that was cool for a little while until I was more indebted because I made a little more, so now I got to get more, right? And it's like, it, just, it never ends, uh, Filling the void with more of what didn't work in the past will always leave us empty, looking, mining for more. We all do this. Some of the ways we might pursue fulfillment in places it can't be found, uh, some of them are a big deal, some of them are small, food, alcohol, relationships, maybe even recreation, uh, physical appearance, achievement, competition, uh, you know, if I can just exceed that person. Uh, Then then I'll I'll have the approval that I seek. Uh, I bet when Jesus said this, when he asks her this question, and then he answers uh, with all the details of her life, I bet she had a really abrupt uh, response. Uh, The tone of the conversation has changed, but, you know, if somebody just, like, called out all of your dirty laundry without ever even, like, experiencing it, you'd probably be like, oh, what is happening right now? She, She had to be shocked by that. He wants to do that in our lives. He wants to do the same thing because he's trying to heal her. 
He's trying to lead her to living water, end the cycle, but she's just trying to fill the same void with the same old stuff. Now, there might be somebody here, someone listening, who is tired from the struggle of seeking, tired from climbing the mountain, trying to, trying to get over the hump to the place of rest, a place of peace, a place of confidence, a place of security. We're climbing the hill, trying to get to the spot where we're okay. Uh, that can be exhausting, um, especially if you're a young adult trying to find your place in the world, figure out where you fit. That can be a really, really tiring process. Maybe the struggle for internal peace, maybe the struggle for security, maybe the struggle for purpose, maybe it feels like it will never end. I think to some degree we can probably all relate to that, and Jesus wants to end that struggle. That's what we see in this example. To give you the freedom to be at peace with who you are and let him worry about tomorrow. To give you the freedom by trusting in him to be okay. That's, that's what he's trying to give to this, this woman. It's what he wants to give to us. There's a whole bunch of historical and spiritual nuances, but I just want you to notice the conclusion of the conversation. Now, I think that's where we find the part that is most applicable to our lives. Verse 19, this woman is responding to the fact that Jesus just called out all her circumstances. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain... But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, that's kind of a weird response. It's possible that she's actually just changing the subject, uh, that she's trying to slip off the hook right here. We don't, we don't really know. Um, but Jesus has a response. Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The Samaritans worship what you do not know and we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Makes sense, right? Because Jesus is Jewish. Salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Okay, the dynamics between Jews and Samaritans are pretty inescapable in this conversation, but, but let me just pose two kind of high-level questions that don't really have a lot to do with the circumstances between them. The first question is this, is God seeking worship or is he seeking worshipers? Well, in the statement, it says God is seeking worshipers, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Because he loves people, not actually, it turns out, all that concerned about rituals and checkboxes. He loves people. He wants to be connected to them. He wants the best for them. So he's seeking worshipers. Now, that's important to us as we're trying to decide how we're going to live and how we're going to relate to God and pursue God uh, to know what is it that God wants. He wants worshipers. He wants you specifically. He wants worshipers, not necessarily worship. Now, of course, a worshiper is going to worship. So how does God want to be worshipped? In spirit and in truth. Not with pretense and ritual, but in spirit and in truth. Not on Sunday morning only. Not in theory. 
Not when it's convenient for me or when it agrees with what I've already decided I'm going to do. God wants to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. From the depth of the soul in honest submission to his authority. So the best way I could conceptualize spirit and and truth is from the depths of the soul and in honest submission to his authority. Verse 25, the woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Now, uh, Jesus is trying to elevate her thinking, and it's almost like she's making kind of an excuse, right? She's saying, yeah, well, when the Messiah comes, he'll explain all that, and then, then we'll have it all figured out. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Now, the line of conversation continues with Jesus' disciples when they come back, but we're going we're gonna to end right here for today. Um, but there's a couple of potential takeaways okay, from, the, from the story that um, I hope you can process and think about which one or maybe both is most applicable to you. Uh, the first is that for some people, you might be in a spot where you're discouraged you're beat up, maybe even abused uh, in some way, and you need to see the Father's heart in Jesus. You need, you need to know that that's there, uh, that Jesus has a Father's heart for you. He said in John 14, 9, he said, anyone who sees me sees the Father. So if you want to know what God is like, what kind of attitude he has toward uh, discouraged and beat up people, now you know, because anyone who sees Jesus has seen the Father. So if you're wondering how God feels about you, how he feels about your discouragement, if, is God just waiting for you to clean yourself up and pick yourself up and by the strength of your own will move on? No, because that's not what a loving Father does. You need to see Jesus, the Father's heart in Jesus. God came to earth. He went to the loneliest outcast in the most depraved community to demonstrate his heart. He loves you. He wants you to experience the life that only he can give you by putting your hope and your faith in him, not trying to fill the void with more of what hasn't worked in the past. So, so if that's you, know that God has a father's heart for you. He's for you. A second possible takeaway uh, for some might be that the only thing standing between you and a renewal of the soul Uh, You know, you go through these spiritual kind of dry phases where um, it feels like I'm I'm good, I know I'm saved, like I know I'm going to heaven, but I just feel like I'm just kind of on autopilot kind of cruising. It might be that the only thing standing between you and a revival in your own soul is to replace what's been draining you with living water. It's not that easy because it might involve a, a change of course, a redirection, a change of attitude, a change of thinking. Uh, But I'd ask you to ask yourself this question. Am I trying to fill a need or a longing that only God can fill with something else? Am Am I trying to fill a need or a longing that only God can fill? Am I trying to fill it up with something else? Many of us have experienced the letdown of trying to fill a void, maybe a loneliness or a desire with more of what hasn't worked in the past. Have you gone around that cul-de-sac once or twice? I know I have. Uh, we've, a lot of us have experienced that. But Jesus completes the conversation by saying to this woman, what you're seeking, what you're waiting for, the, the one with all the answers, that's me. When the Savior comes, he'll make sense of it all. Jesus says, that, that's me. I'm the one you seek. Trust in Jesus is a matter 
of the soul. It's a matter of faith. Our tendency is to try and find natural resolution and natural purpose, to try and find the water. But Jesus is saying, seek eternal purpose, eternal resolution, the living water. And so I want to invite you as we...